Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this Sunday School series on the Gospel of Mark, offered here at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I serve as a scholar-in-residence at First Pres, and I'll be leading you through this week's lesson. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that in addition to these audio files, I've also made available my Prezi slides from the live version of this course. So if you want to listen and follow along with some PowerPoint-style presentations, you can go to our website under the Learn link. Just follow the signs to Sunday School Curriculum, and there you'll be able to find a link to the presentation slides. In this week's lesson, we'll be considering Mark 1.20, through 3, 6. And a lot of ha- is happening in this very short segment of text. And as we read through it, it can feel like a, a bunch of loosely associated and barely related stories, all kind of compiled and jumbled together. But what I want to suggest here at the outset is that we can think of this material being arranged in two parallel frames, each with five stories. In Mark 1, 21 through 2, 11, we find a set of five healing stories in which we encounter Jesus healing people from various different ailments, from diseases to unclean spirits. And then in 2, 1 through 3, 6, the second of the parallel frames, we find a set of five controversy stories where Jesus is beginning to debate and uh, receive some resistance from the crowds that are following him. These two parallel frames overlap with the fifth healing story, which is also the first controversy story. This is going to be a familiar text about four men uh, lowering a paralytic through a ceiling down to Jesus to be healed. That's in Mark 2, 1 through 11. And again, it's the fifth of the five healing stories, but it's also the first of the five controversy stories. So it's a type of hinge between these two parallel frames that I'm suggesting uh, as a way of organizing the content of Mark 1, 20 through 3, 6. At the core, both the controversy stories and the healing stories are about Jesus's authority. Jesus's authority is most characteristically expressed in the Gospel of Mark through his healing. So remember, in Mark, Jesus is more of a healer. He's more action-oriented rather than a teacher or a preacher. But in the same regard, questions about Jesus' authority, what form it takes, where it comes from, who has it, is the primary issue that fuels Jesus' opponents and ultimately leads to a sort of controversy uh, that brings us to the cross. And so this issue of authority then kind of groups together or bridges um, the whole of this uh, set of material in Mark and connects the issue of healing and controversy. Before we begin to dive into these texts, let me offer a brief word of geographical context. And I'll be doing this throughout this series just as a way of giving us a sense geographically of where these stories are taking place. We must always remember that this belief we have in Jesus is not in some abstract concept or philosophy, but our faith is one rooted in history, in location, in actual uh, uh, geography that one can visit Today, Now, we don't often know with certitude exactly where Jesus said such and such or made such a healing, but we can get a general sense of the geographical layout or the region in which Jesus appears. And so I want to take, if you're following Learn along in the presentation slides, I want you to look at uh, the map that I've provided of northern Israel. For in this early part of Mark, really for these uh, first five or six or seven chapters of Mark, we find Jesus' ministry centered in what is known as the Galilee. And the Galilee is a region 
to the north and northwest of the Sea of Galilee itself. And again, much of Jesus' ministry is situated here, particularly in Mark 1.21 through 3.6. Those, uh, that passage makes specific mention of two particular places within a Galilee. The first is a synagogue in Capernaum. There, uh, Jesus performs his first healing miracle. And uh, if you go to Capernaum today, which is very possible, archaeologists and historians are, are fairly confident about where Capernaum is uh, and, where, and how you can visit it, um, you'll actually find some very interesting archaeological remains. If you travel there today, you'll find remains of a very ancient synagogue, um, perhaps from as early as the 5th century CE. There again on the slides, uh, you can see some pictures of the exterior wall of the synagogue and also a picture of the columns that would have lined one of the sides of the interior of the synagogue. Now, a 5th century synagogue is quite late, but of course that's at least 400 years after the time of Jesus. So the relevance of this archaeological site might not really uh, pertain to the biblical question or to the biblical text that we're focused on in this lesson. However, if you take a look at the picture of the outer wall of the synagogue, you'll notice a clear distinction in color between the stones on the top, which are white limestone, and the stones on the very bottom, which forms like a a dark gray or black basalt. Well, archaeologists think that what actually, what this distinction of color is not, uh, they didn't change their mind in terms of the exterior paint they used to decorate the synagogue, but rather this change in color actually suggests two different archaeological layers. It was quite common in the ancient world, in fact, uh, when you wanted to to build a new building, that you would actually use the foundation of an older building. And so what archaeologists think is that the, the dark basalt stone on the bottom actually represents the foundation of a much earlier synagogue, and the white limestone that you can see uh, all the way up to the top represents that 5th century synagogue that I referred to earlier. So it's possible then that the black basalt then is the foundation of that first century synagogue that Jesus, in fact, would have visited in Mark 21. We can't know this for sure, but certainly Jesus was in a synagogue and it was in Capernaum and these archaeological remains suggest the foundation of just such a synagogue. So that's the first reference. The second archaeological reference that we get in these texts is to um, what the NRSV calls the house of Simon. And remember, Simon is another word for Peter. So this is Peter's house. I think this is actually something of a mistranslation, though. We know that Peter, Simon, uh, that is, is from Bethsaida. And then in the next verse, we find out that in this house that's referred to as the house of Simon, it's actually Peter's mother-in-law who is living there. So more likely then, I want to suggest that the house referred to here in these early chapters of Mark is not Peter's house, but rather is his mother-in-law's house, and he likely would have been staying there. Now, this is interesting for at least two reasons. One, it highlights the fact that Peter was married, so early apostles and followers of Jesus um, could be married and have families. Uh, But second, we know that Peter is living with his mother-in-law, which I have to think is still one of the great fears of any good Jewish boy up to this day. Nevertheless, we might ask, uh, do we have any archaeological evidence, like we did for the early synagogue, do we have any evidence of this house of Peter, uh, or house of Peter's mother-in-law? Well, if you stand at the entrance um, to the synagogue and look outward, 
you look upon another series of archaeological remains, at the back of which is this magnificent and modern Franciscan church. Now, the Franciscan church, uh, which was built in, in the 20th century, it's really quite new. This Franciscan church was actually built on top of a Byzantine period octagonal church. And if you advance the slides a little bit further, you can see the remains of that archaeological, uh, the archaeological remains, I should say, of that octagonal church existing just beneath the Franciscan church. And it's a really wonderful architectural design here because the Franciscan church, which again was built in the 20th century, was really built on top of the remains, but allowing some space to exist between the ceiling of the modern church and uh, the foundation stones of that ancient Byzantine period church. Now again, Byzantine period is quite old, but it doesn't necessarily get us back to Peter's church. Well, If you dig further uh, beneath this edifice, then you'll realize that the Byzantine period church was itself actually built on top of a second century house church. Uh, In fact, if you go through uh, and into the Franciscan church, what they've done, it's really magnificent, the the Uh, the floor of that Byzantine church, one segment of it at least, is actually glass. And if you look through that glass, you actually can see not only the remains of the octagonal Byzantine period church, but you can see down beneath that into the remains of this second century house church. Now, this house church isn't necessarily the same building uh, of the house of Peter, the house of Peter's mother-in-law. But when we think about why a house church would have been built here, it's perhaps the case that the early church founded this house church at precisely the location of Peter's mother-in-law house for kind of a symbolic uh, and geographical resonance with that early and important place in Jesus's ministry. So in both cases here, we, we might indeed have some archaeological evidence that at least helps us begin to pinpoint the location at which uh, the first of these healing stories takes place. So with all of that being said in terms of geography and archaeology, let's turn then to the texts themselves. And here we'll start with the first panel, the first set of, of stories, uh, five healing stories. And just to lay them out for you, there's a story about the healing of an unclean spirit in a synagogue in Mark 1, 21 to 28. Then we have a healing of Peter's mother-in-law in that house that we just mentioned in Capernaum, that's 129 through 31. Then many others come to the house of Peter's mother-in-law and are healed there, 132 to 34. We have the healing of a man with a skin disease in Galilee in 140 to 45. And then finally, we have the healing of the paralytic in, a, in, a, in another Capernaum house in 2, 1 through 11. Time doesn't permit us to deal with all of these stories in detail, so let me pick out two and we'll dive in. The first story to take a closer look at is the story of the healing of an unclean spirit in 121 to 28. This is the first of the five healing stories. Let's read the text. Uh, I'm going to read the text for you. Uh, And again, if you're following along with the presentation slides, you'll be able to see the text on display. Or perhaps if you're just reading along with your uh, in your own Bibles, turn to Mark 1, 21 to 28. Here's the story. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, that is Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of the Galilee. Now there's a couple things I want to draw your attention to in this fascinating story of a healing of an unclean spirit, or of a man with an unclean spirit in Capernaum. First, think about the context. We've already mentioned that this happens in a synagogue. We've seen pictures of such. But we want to think about, just very briefly, what's the difference between a synagogue and a temple? At this time, there still would have been a temple in Jerusalem. And the temple would have still been the site uh, for sacrifices, for offerings. It would have been the home base of priests, by and large. Whereas synagogues, there were many different synagogues at this time, and they were scattered throughout uh uh, Jewish-controlled territory uh, there in Israel-Palestine. And synagogues at this point functioned something as community centers. They were a place for political meetings, for social gatherings, uh, for courts, for schools, for charitable activities, even for meals. And it was also there that local religious and liturgical activities took place, but not so much of the sacrificial variety, but more in terms of teaching and engaging with Scripture. So it's quite a logical place for Jesus to begin his teaching ministry. Now, the second issue is closely related to that, and that is if you read this story, the, the, the crux of the matter seems to be this issue of authority, which I signaled earlier in the introduction to this lesson. Uh, Jesus here is teaching uh, as one having authority and not as the scribes. And if we read this verse just on surface value, it seems like it might be contrasting Jesus as one who has authority with the scribes who don't have authority. And I don't think that's exactly the impression that Mark intends to give us. For in the ancient world, scribes too would have been seen as a source of authority. Scribes would have been trained in reading biblical Hebrew. They would have been trained in reading and understanding and interpreting the scriptures. They would have been well-respected teachers who were perceived to have some level of, of authority. So I think what Mark is doing here is not necessarily saying Jesus had authority and the scribes didn't. Rather, he's saying Jesus had a type of authority that the scribes did not have. Jesus himself was a teacher. And in fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is very characteristically described as a teacher. In fact, uh, Jesus, Mark refers to Jesus very often as rabbi. Uh, and rabbi is that old Hebrew term, literally meaning my great one, that, that serves as kind of a term uh, for any teacher. But Mark's point uh, is that Jesus is not just any rabbi. He's not just a rabbi down the street. He's not just another scribe who interacts with the scripture. Rather, this Jesus is a rabbi, is a scribe with even greater authority than these human rabbis and these human scribes. We'll return to this uh, topic about Jesus' teaching later in this series. The third thing I want to draw your attention to is how the unclean spirit addresses Jesus. He says in verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So they know who he is. It's this man, Jesus from Nazareth. But they even understand Jesus' identity at a second level. The spirit continues, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is actually a remarkable witness to the true identity of this Jesus of Nazareth. And if you remember back to the first lesson in this series, one of the points, one of the distinctives of the Gospel of Mark is that issue of irony. That is, from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, 
The reader knows who this Jesus is, but the disciples continually are wondering, who is this person? Who is he to, uh, to calm the wind and the waves, to uh, perform miracles, and so on and so forth? The, the disciples never really fully get who Jesus is, who his true identity is. But the reader knows, and very interestingly and somewhat ironically, it's the unclean spirit and the outsiders who also recognize Jesus's identity. It's a very interesting characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. The final thing I'll draw your attention to here um, is notice how the crowds respond to the healing of this man with an unclean spirit. Verse 27 says, They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, Jesus' fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. It's important to note here that Jesus, in fact, in the early part of his ministry was quite popular. His healing uh, ministry really attracted a lot of attention, and he seemed to have um, a great following. There, there will be people opposed to Jesus, and that's going to come very quickly. But early on here, Jesus has uh, really a growing fame and popularity, especially in this northern region of the Galilee. So that's the first healing story. The second healing story that I want to draw your attention to is when Jesus heals uh, a leper. Here again, I want to begin by reading the text together, and if you're reading along in your own Bible, turn to Mark 1, 40 to 45. A leper came to Jesus, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out of the country, and people came to him from every quarter." Here again, I want to draw your attention to a few specific details that I think are particularly interesting and important for understanding this text. First, we might think, what exactly is a leper? The man here is described in the NRSV as a leper. And for us uh, in, in contemporary times, we think of a leprosy as this very loath- loathsome uh, skin disease. The Greek term lepros uh, could refer in the ancient world actually to a variety of different ailments, not necessarily what we think of in terms of leprosy today, though it, it is likely the case uh, that, that, that this disease, whatever it was, was understood to be a communicable disease. That is, uh, that it could transfer from one person to another based on contact or perhaps even proximity. So it definitely was a serious medical condition, no matter if it was what we think of leprosy today or some other sort of skin ailment. But the point I want to emphasize is that in the Old Testament world, and according to Jewish custom, whatever the skin disease was, it was not just a medical problem. The most In, in the Old Testament, Skin diseases are one of the most prominent examples of what caused for someone what is known as ritual uncleanliness, or better yet, ritual impurity. It was a condition that wasn't necessarily a problem in terms of morals or sin or anything like that, but it was a condition of the body that rendered someone unable to enter into holy places, namely into the temple. And it it, it also prohibited people from coming into contact 
with other people. So if you had a skin disease, you not only had a medical problem, but you also had a problem of ritual impurity and a problem that must be treated through social, social isolation. Now I'm going to come back to that because uh, it's going to matter in a later part of this text, but just hold that thought for now. The second thing I'll draw your attention to is Jesus' motivation. When the man comes to him in verse 40, uh, Jesus is said to have been, in verse 41, moved with, with pity. This gives us a rare glimpse into the motivation of Jesus. And in the word here in Greek, we don't always need to know words in Greek to understand the text, but the word in, in Greek here is really interesting and important. The word that gets translated as pity is splagnizomai, uh, and it literally means that Jesus had this man in his innards, in his bowels. Uh, this seems like a funny imagery to us because we think typically think uh, the seat of emotion or compassion is the heart. But in the Greco-Roman world, the seat of emotion were actually the bowels or the intestines. So, so for, for, for Mark to say that, that Jesus had this man in his bowels, splagnizomai, is really to say that, this, that, that Jesus here is motivated by the depths of his compassion, by the depths of his uh, emotional capacities. That is, he's not just doing this healing to display mighty powers to gain attention, although that's ends up what happening, but Jesus actually here is motivated out of a deep compassion for the man's uh, physical ailment and likely also the ritual isolation that ensued. Finally, let me uh, point your attention to the, to the request and the response of the man. When the man approaches uh, Jesus, he asks not to be healed but rather to be made clean. And this might seem a little bit odd. Now, perhaps the idea of being made clean was just a synonym for being healed, uh, but I actually think something different is going on. To be sure, this man did need healing. A skin disease wouldn't necess- could uh, resolve on its own, but this man was suffering, and so it would be natural for him to ask for healing. But I think in this context, and to circle back to an earlier point I made, uh, this man understands that he is a twofold problem. He not only has a medical ailment, but he also is rendered ritually impure. So when he asks Jesus um, for help, he doesn't just ask to be healed, but rather he says, if you choose, you can make me clean. That is, you can not only address the physical ailment that I have, but you can also make me once again ritually pure. And this would have been so important because even after being healed from a skin disease, according to Leviticus and the Old Testament concept of ritual impurity, you still would have had to have been in a state of ritual isolation. That is, uh, if you had a physical uh, ailment like a skin disease, even if it cleaned up on its own and cleared up on its own, you still would have to uh, stay for about six or seven days in ritual isolation before you then could be reintegrated into society. So it seems like this man understands that background and he says, look, yes, make me cl- make me well again, heal me from this disease, but also make me clean. That is, end this ritual isolation that I've been forced into. And this idea, I think, is further uh, solidified when we read later in the text, when Jesus says to the man, hey, say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded 
as a testimony to them. Jesus here is alluding to Leviticus 13 through 14. This, uh, th- these two chapters really detail what has to happen when someone has a skin disease. And even after that skin disease goes away, Leviticus 13 and 14 says that someone must then go to the priest after a period of, of about a week of isolation. You would have to, be, you would have to go to, to priest and undergo a process of ritual cleansing. Only then would you be reintegrated into the community. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, I understand the twofold problem that you face. I'm healing you. I'm making you clean. But in order to stay, uh, in order to continue to follow the stipulations laid out in Leviticus 13 and 14, you should still go to the priest and be recognized Uh, as someone who has been made clean. So Jesus is doing something miraculous here in healing and cleansing this person. He's doing something that expands our understanding of how God transcends lines of ritual impurity and other such mechanisms that separate people. But Jesus is still doing so in a context that understands and follows uh, an ancient Jewish tradition of presenting oneself to a priest, even after having skin diseases um, resolved or healed. Finally, I should say that at the very end of this, Jesus also commands this person uh, to be silent and really to keep this miracle a secret. And this seems like a very odd thing, because if I was healed or if I was doing the healing, I would want someone to immediately go out and to brag about what happened. I would want everyone in the world to know either that I had been healed or that I had been one doing the healing. But Jesus precisely does the opposite of that, and he orders this man to be silent. And this is a very odd part about the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to see it come up again and again, and I'm going to treat it in more detail in a future lesson in this series. So just keep your eye on it. We're going to circle back to it later uh, in a couple of lessons uh, when I try to explain a couple different reasons um, of why Jesus routinely commands people to keep his healing and to keep his ministry a secret. Okay, let's move on then to the second parallel frame that organizes the content in this part of our lesson, and that is I want to move on to the topic of the five controversy stories, which appear in 2.1 through 3.6. To outline those controversy stories um, for you, they are, um, they address the following questions. In 2.1 through 11, the, the controversy is about who Jesus is to forgive sins. In, in 2.13 to 17, the controversy involves, why does Jesus eat with sinners? In 2.18 to 22, the question is, why doesn't Jesus and really uh, his disciples fast on the Sabbath? In 2.23 to 28, the question is, why don't the disciples keep the Sabbath? And finally, in 3.1 through 6, the question is, why does Jesus heal on the Sabbath? So there are five stories to match the five stories of healing that we encountered in the earlier part of this lesson's text. Uh, These five stories are actually, uh, there's actually some structure to them. They're not just five random stories uh, knit together. Uh, A couple things to notice. The first and the last controversy both involve healing. So in 2, 1 through 11, it's about Jesus healing the paralytic. Uh, but he does more than that, as we'll see in a second. And then in 3, 1 through 6, the problem is him healing on the Sabbath. The first two uh, in 2, 1 through 11 and 2, 13 through 17 are about sin um, or sinners. And the last two are about Sabbath. So again, there's some thematic organization here. And finally, the middle three um, all involve eating. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? 
Why doesn't he fast? That is, why does Jesus feel free to eat on any day? And why don't the disciples keep the Sabbath? That last story is actually about them eating or really picking grain on the Sabbath. So there's some a couple there's some internal structure to this set of five controversy stories. Here again, we don't have time to look at all of these stories in detail, so let me pick out two of them and we'll take a closer look. Let's start with 2, 1 through 11. The controversy here, as already said, is uh, who is Jesus to have the authority to forgive sins? Let's read the text. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around there that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So really the problem of Jesus' popularity is that now he's becoming less and less accessible to the very people who need them. The text continues in three. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to to Jesus because of the crowd, that is, they, they literally and physically could not enter the front door, they removed the roof above him, and having dug through through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, a couple things uh, to keep in mind here. Um, one of the reasons why the people are able to enter through the roof is that in the Palestinian house design, the roof had cross beams, but in between the cross beams, they were filled in with, uh, uh, with thatched and hardened mud. So it was actually quite possible to dig through the roof. It would be quite different than, than digging through the roof in a modern house, but this was possible. It would have taken some labor, of course, but it's possible. And this very act of digging through the roof, what it really does is it represents and displays the incredible faith of the four people who brought the paralytic to Jesus. We don't know anything yet of the paralytic's faith, but we do know uh, something about the faith of these four men. They were willing to dig through a roof to get to Jesus because they believed that healing was possible with him, and they believed that such effort was, was important and necessary. We might think in our own selves as a type of uh, application of this text, are we the sort of Christians who would metaphorically dig through the roof to find access to Jesus. Now, that's the first half of the story, and it easily could end here because the man asked for forgiveness. Jesus, or excuse me, the man asked for healing. Jesus grants that healing. But what's odd in verse 5, what Jesus says is not, you are healed, but rather what he says is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this doesn't mean that the man was paralyzed because of sin, and it also doesn't mean that, that, we, fin- that we can fulfill our, our ministry uh, to those in need simply by proclaiming the gospel and not attending to their actual physical needs. We shouldn't draw those conclusions, in my opinion, from this text, but we should wonder why is it that Jesus is forgiving sins when, in fact, the man has been brought to him for healing? Well, let's continue reading and get a better sense of this, starting with 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? That is, why does he say, your sins are forgiven? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So get what the scribes are saying here. They recognize that it's only God's prerogative to forgive sins, and they're hearing Jesus claim to have the ability to forgive sins, and they know what that means. They know that by forgiving sins, Jesus is claiming to be God. Uh, so, and, and they consider this to be an act of blasphemy. Continuing then with verse 8. 
At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. In this context, then, it seems like the healing of the man, is the primary function of it is not just to show compassion for his, uh, his physical condition, but rather the healing demonstrates Jesus' authority. In fact, that Jesus has the authority of God, and that authority also enables him and permits him to forgive sins. This is the truly remarkable thing about this text. It's not only a matter of Jesus's ability to forgive and to control nature or to bring about physical healing, um, but rather it's about his ability to grant forgiveness. And in the eyes of the scribes, this ability to grant forgiveness, that's really the point of controversy, not whether or not Jesus could, for, uh, could heal people. In fact, from the earlier text, we know that when Jesus healed people, the crowds were amazed and they followed him. Healing people was not a point of controversy. Forgiving sins, no, that was an issue that would come to get Jesus in a little bit of trouble. And one of the things I'll leave you with in this text, uh, thinking back to how this man got into Jesus in the first place, the four friends who I've said earlier display great faith in digging through the, the roof to get to Jesus. They do so on the assumption that, that Jesus would heal him. But I wonder, would they also have dug through the ceiling in order to present this man before Jesus for forgiveness? I think it's a question for us. Do we approach forgiveness with the same sort of earnestness and uh, intensity and urgency that this man, uh, or that these four men do so in Mark's gospel? I think this text invites us to pursue Jesus, to come into his presence with an urgency, not just because of our hope for healing, but for our need for forgiveness. Now, finally then, let's turn to one last story of controversy, and it's in 2, 13 to 17, and it's a dinner party at Levi's house. And again, we'll start by taking a closer look at the text itself. As Jesus was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And so Levi got up and followed him, and as he sat down at dinner in Levi's house, Excuse me. As he sat down at dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners." So what's going on in this text? Why were these uh, scribes and Pharisees so up in arms about Jesus sitting down with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the sinners part should be rather obvious. Sinners uh, could refer to any group of people. Of course, we are all sinners, so this might just be a description of the fact that Jesus sat down with human beings, with, with, with any sort of community. This would be true. But in the ancient world, the idea of a tax collector would carry with it a particularly negative connotation. At the time of Jesus, very, very heavy uh, uh, layers of taxes um, were levied on the people. Some came from local uh, 
Jewish authorities, but most of them came from Rome. I mean, it's really an extraordinary level of taxation that people back then faced, and it produced systematic poverty throughout the ancient world. Now, but the way taxes were collected was not through uh, submitting um, all of the right forms by April 15th, but rather there were individual tax collectors that had to go from town to town and village to village to collect these taxes. Uh, but the way they did so uh, was often by, by intimidation and brute force, and the way these tax collectors would be compensated is that they would get a portion of the taxes they collected. So it was not at all uncommon then for these tax collectors to essentially overcharge uh, the requisite tax rate so that they could skim more off the top. So in the eyes of, of many of Jesus' followers, many, of course, who would have been poor, the tax collectors were the very people who were depriving them of a rightful means of existence. So tax collectors had a very, very bad reputation. And so all of a sudden here, Jesus is sitting not just with sinners, that is, anyone, but he's sitting with a particular variety of sinner tax collectors who had a very bad reputation in the ancient world. And 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 so so the, the, the scribes and Pharisees are outraged at this. And, and before we too quickly blame them for being judgmental, I think they had some decent reason to be surprised and outraged. It was common, it was commonplace in the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament that the wise and the righteous should avoid association with the foolish and the wicked. Eating a meal uh, in common is a rather intimate instance of association. And so there were restrictions on associations in general, and eating in particular, uh, for a variety of different reasons. We might even consider a New Testament text in this regard, 1 Corinthians 15.33, which says, bad company ruins good morals. So in the most charitable interpretation, these scribes and Pharisees simply know of this wisdom tradition. They're thinking, why would this righteous and wise man associate with, with the unrighteous and the fools? They're really just applying kind of a conventional biblical wisdom to this particular context. And so it's somewhat reasonable for them to have thought that way. But of course, in the end, it's not quite right. Because we know that Jesus comes in the Gospel of Mark in particular to transcend these boundaries between righteous and sinner, clean and unsinner, kind of marginalized and privileged. Jesus is always pushing those boundaries and daring to associate with people who many other religious leaders would not have associated with. And here again, I think there's a question uh, that bends back towards us as readers of the text. Who are we willing to sit with at table? Who are we willing to be in close association with as Jesus is here? We often protect who we associate with uh, very closely. Uh, We uh, do support community ministry. We do have a compassion, as Jesus does, for those in need. But really what's challenging for us is the extent to which we allow our lives to intersect and overlap with communities of people that maybe in our opinion and in our society are of ill repute, maybe the people who might be considered tax collectors and sinners uh, of the ancient world, who are they in our world? And are we indeed willing, like Jesus, to sit down with them and to break bread at table? Thank you.